Welcome to episode 65 of the Christian Feminist Podcast, part of our summer series on Christian lessons from popular, popular culture. Excuse me. Today we're talking about the recent Marvel film, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, directed by James Gunn and released this May. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Katie Grubbs and Sarah Davis. Hello, Katie and Sarah. Hi! So let's introduce ourselves for anyone who's new to the show. Katie, could you go first? Sure. My name is Katie Grubbs, and I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Um, I live here with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, who also teaches at HBU. And uh, we have three very active children, uh, age five and under. So our life is, is quite noisy, but a lot of fun. Thanks, Katie. How about you, Sarah? Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Davis, and I am a librarian in Waco, Texas. And yes, I live in Waco, and no, I have not been on Fixed Rapper, and I do not know Chip and Joanna Gaines. <laughs> Since everybody always asks me that. <laughs> but uh, I have been on the Christian Feminist Podcast for about a semester, almost a semester. You, you can tell you work in academia when you don't say like six months, everything is in like semesters or something like that. And I am recording from a different place than usual. And so please forgive me if you hear a dog barking in the background. Uh, and I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show. I also measure things in semesters because I've been a longtime graduate student, first in Renaissance literature, and now I'm studying theology at uh, Yale Divinity School, working on my MDiv. So I'm living up here in Connecticut with my husband, Jonathan. Um, okay, so let's start things off. So first of all, I need to warn all of you listeners that if you have not yet seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and you don't want to hear spoilers, then you should just stop now because um, you'll want to be saving this episode until after you've watched the film. There will be many spoilers. And that said, uh, let me jump into some of those spoilers with a brief review of the, the general plot of the film just to get us oriented before we start talking about the Christian themes and lessons that we've chosen. So the film starts off with the Guardian's crew protecting these precious batteries belonging to a people called the Sovereign. And when Rocket, the raccoon-like raccoon -like member of the Guardians, steals some of the batteries himself, the Guardians find themselves pursued by the Sovereign. And then they're saved by this mysterious being who it turns out is Peter Quill's long-lost father, named very appropriately Ego, who is a so-called celestial who has the ability to manipulate matter. Peter's reunion with Ego is part of the film's strong theme of family. At the same time that we're wondering whether or not Ego will prove to be a good father, we're also watching Gamera and her sister Nebula work out their differences, and we're watching Rocket decide whether or not he can accept being a part of the, the Guardians as his chosen family. And we're hearing more about Yandu's fatherly relationship to Peter. Um, so in the end, of course, Ego does not turn out to be a good father. Um, he only wants to conscript Peter's own matter-manipulating skills into his ego's personal mission to turn other worlds into extensions of ego's own being, eliminating the life on those worlds. So the Guardians gang um, all have to band together to defeat ego in this climactic battle in order to, of course, guard the galaxy. So intertwined with and running alongside that central theme of family that I've mentioned, there are a number of themes and lessons that we've pulled out as significant to us in thinking about our Christian faith. Um, but before we explore those, let's just quickly talk about our experiences with the film and with Guardians of the Galaxy in general. Uh, Katie, would you mind going first? Sure. 
Um, I loved the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and I, I should preface this by saying I'm a huge fan of all the Marvel movies, but I've never been a comic book reader. So, um, listeners who are huge comic book fans, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I actually got interested in the Marvel Universe through the movies um, and didn't read the comics um, in the past. So, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is the one that I'm familiar with. So, I never read any comics about the Guardians or anything like that. Um, but I loved the different tone that the first movie had, even from the other Marvel movies, definitely from anything DC puts out, um, really. Um, it just a more lighthearted tone. Um, the palette even is so so bright. Um, it's so different. It's almost candy colored, um, and uh, a very different style. Um, lots more banter. A lot more funny lines. Um, even though the stakes are really just as high as they would be in any kind of Captain America movie or the Avengers or something, it's a totally different tone. Um, and uh, I saw this particular movie, Volume Two, two different times. Um, once with um, my younger my younger sister and younger brother back when it first came out, um, and then again much more recently. Um, I really, uh, as I was saying before uh, to the other panelists, I really enjoyed getting to go see the movie a second time for research purposes <laughs> to talk on the podcast <laughs> today because I really loved the movie, and so it was a great excuse and saw it a second time with a friend um, to take notes because when I saw it the first time I didn't know we were going to be podcasting about it, so I didn't take any notes or didn't really think about it in that way of noticing themes. Um, I just just kind of along for the ride the first time. But I will say of, of this this movie um, that I, I, I I'm noticing in a, of both Guardians movies, it's I'm noticing where the different kind of threads, Marvel threads are starting to converge because um, I've watched several times because I'm very excited about it. The trailer for Thor Ragnarok, which comes out in. Yeah, November. I'm very excited about um, that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? Because um, the tone of that seems so much more... It seems like almost a midway point between the other Marvel stuff and the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff in terms of the tone and, and the colors even. Like, the palette, again, mm -hmm. is much more bright. Um, and so it seems like they're kind of starting to converge towards the middle, probably for Infinity War, um, which is coming out in a couple of years. So um, it's. I feel like this movie is also fun because it's um, starting to some of that stuff starting to connect and I even noticed if you guys didn't notice in um, in the credits for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 not in a one of the many <laughs> credit scenes yeah. <laughs> inter-credit scenes but along the side of the credits kind of dancing in, in the margins as it were is um, Jeff Goldblum's character from Thor Ragnarok that you see in the trailer oh. he's in the credits for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 I noticed him the second time oh. I went to see the movie so I know right it's weird it's a, a weird connection um Anyway, so I, yeah, that's kind of my, I love the movie, I love the first movie, so I'm going to try not to gush too much today. <laughs> Thanks. What about you, Sarah? Well, uh, my experience is very similar to Katie's. I am not a comic book reader myself, but when all of these comic book movies started coming out, I, you know, I wanted to go see them, and I, I got very into it, and so I, I did all this, being a librarian, I did all this, like, background research, and so I know where the story's going because I, I had to spoil it for myself, but I haven't actually read uh, the comics that this uh, particular story is based on. I remember really, really loving uh, the first Guardians when it came out, as I think most people did, because, like Katie said, it was bright, it was bubbly, um, and that it just did not take itself as seriously as many other comic book movies, even some of the better Marvel movies do like it really seemed that it was it was kind of meta that it just it was very like aware of what it was especially with peter quill being very much like oh i'm gonna be the most amazing leader i mean because most of the time in uh comic book movies and you always kind of have this reluctant hero who's you know, okay, well, because nobody else is stepping forward, I'm going to do this. And Peter Phil is <laughs> yeah. very much like, no, dudes, like, I'm here. I'm here to save the day. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. And so he just, he doesn't have that, like, natural gravitas that you think of for more of a, like, a DC superhero. And even somebody like, uh, like Captain America or Thor, you know, Peter Quill, Star-Lord, I mean, he comes up with his own name and he's like, come on, guys, call me Star-Lord. It's going to be awesome. So the fact that he is so like lighthearted, like to me makes this, it's, it's much easier to kind of take a step back and just like appreciate the ridiculousness of comic book movies when the movie seems to be doing that all on its own. 
So that's that's the main thing I really liked. And uh, for this particular movie, uh, when I saw it, the, the main thing I, I was living for through this whole movie, I would be like, Baby Groot! Baby Groot! I mean, let's be honest. Me Baby Groot's too. everyone's yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, and then I liked that, I did like in this movie how some of the background characters um, from the first movie who, I kind of knew who they were, or actually I didn't know who they were. Like, so... Some of the characters, like the blue alien, there's so that there's a character of Yondu who has like the magical like arrow that he can control. Well, I didn't know his name was Yondu. I was like, oh yeah, blue alien and purple alien and green alien. And so this movie, I was like, oh, these people have names, and I've learned what they are. <laughs> yeah, um, and I mean, I really agree with both of you for the reasons for enjoying the films with like the lightheartedness, like Katie was talking about, and especially the you know. Quill's character. I mean, you gotta love Chris Pratt in any role, but this <laughs> this role is just such fun. Um, and I have to say, for my part too, that I also I don't have a great knowledge of the comic books at all. I only know the Marvel Universe films and those only from uh, just a few times watching them. And this time, and this film, only watching it once, I was sort of kicking myself after I decided to do this episode. I didn't. Uh, it was out of the theaters in my area by the time I had the chance to go see it again. So it's like, oh, I've only got to see it once. Um, but uh, yeah, and I was struck by this film mostly because of this, like the surprising richness of this family theme that is something that I don't really find in a lot of, of superhero movies, especially ones that have this lightheartedness to them. Um, so that was something that drew me to this film particularly. Uh, for the sake of time, though, let's move on to the reading section, where we'll talk about the Christian lessons that we take from the film and about a couple of articles we've read responding to the film. Um, so, Katie, would you start us off with introducing some potential Christian lessons that others have uh, found in relation to the film? Sure. So the article that I read um, is by a guy, Aaron Earls, who um, blogs at The Wardrobe Door, which is absolutely a C.S. Lewis reference um, and uh, he's he's a journalist um, for uh, Facts and Trends magazine which is put out by Lifeway um, sorry editor for Facts and Trends magazine but he he wrote an article called um, Gospel of the Galaxy what the Guardians say about modern faith and um, kind of touching on some of the some of the, the the Christian lessons that one could draw from the film, but then also um, at the end, kind of mentioning a caveat, something that um, is being presented in the movie, a theme that's being presented in the movie that's very modern, um, but is not necessarily um, theologically sound. So um, some of the things that he mentions um, is one, just there are a lot of elements in the film that just on the surface are dealing with ideas of faith or um, religion. I mean, Ego calls himself a little G God, right? Um, and he, as um, Re mentioned, he has this power to create things. Um, you know, his his planet is an extension of himself, as is his spaceship, as is everything that you see. You know, um, he, you know, he's chosen the form that he appears in to Peter Quill. Um, you know, so um, there's that. Um, there are also some pretty obvious um, kind of Christological implications of, you know, Peter Quill having this bifurcated nature, right? So he's part celestial, that's the word ego says. He's also part human. Um, so um, some of the themes that Earls uh, picks up on is um, one, what he calls sacrifices needed. Um, that one of the things that the movie's saying is that um, there is a need for sacrifice. The reality of suffering in the world um, for stories to come right, um, sacrifice is needed. And, and you see this all over the film. Like, so many people get a chance to make a sacrifice in the movie. Um, Peter does, Yondu does, you know, Gamora at one point leaps out of the spaceship to save Drax, who is, like, dangling on the end of a rope outside the spaceship. Um, I mean, pretty much everybody gets a chance to, um, to be, to make a sacrifice. Um, Another thing, and, and obviously all those right, um, all the sacrifices we make in life, at least as Christians, are kind of um, dim uh, reflections of the great sacrifice that Christ made for us. 
Um, another theme he picks up on that um, we would find in Christianity as well is that community is worth the effort of developing it. Um, you know, we might think about it as a church community, but um, this is a huge theme, though it's um, touching more on a family community like Marie mentioned, and we're going to talk more about that later. But the idea that um, you consciously form community and that that's a positive thing and that you really should be doing um, and living life with other people, that it's not a good idea to be a loner um, and to just try to handle everything on your own. Um, you know, in the first Guardians movie, these people came together of necessity to escape prison, right? But in the second movie, they're still choosing to be together. It's a choice that they've made. Um, and uh, he says, quote, they can cope with their tragic backstories and present day losses because they have each other. Um, and he kind of connects this to the way that God weaves people together in the church. Um, you know, our church family being our chosen family, right? We're not blood related to those people. Um, but we've chosen to be in relationship with them. Um, uh, another theme he picks up on is that forgiveness should be available. Um, there's lots of forgiveness in the movie. Yondu is forgiven by his fellow ravagers um, for a past sin, that of transporting um, children. I mean, that's why he picked up Peter Quill when Peter Quill was a child. Um, there's um, kind of forgiveness themes with Gamora and her sister Nebula. Um, who treated each other terribly as children. Um, and uh, so that there's this theme of forgiveness happening. Um, and then the last one that he talks about, the last uh, positive theme, is that um, our purpose in life does not conflict with love. So that kind of in the film's climax, Ego tells Peter, I had to put aside love to achieve my purpose, right? His purpose of consuming all these other worlds. He thinks it's a good purpose. Um, which is just the polar opposite of everything that the guardians are doing and choosing to be together, choosing, um, choosing love. And that's, um, in the end, that's what leads Peter to reevaluate his ideas about who his real father is. Um, you know, uh, cause we're, we're, we're shown in this movie way more in the first movie, even the love that Yondu had for Peter Quill. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm not going to be a total spoiler, but that you see a lot of that at the end of the movie. Um, as I said before, at the end of his article, he kind of touches on one theme in the film that is present very much in our culture, but is not a good theme for a Christian, which is the idea that your heart is infallible. Mm -hmm. um, right? So he says that, um, you know, there's much of the gospel in the Guardians of the Galaxy, but he says, quote, the film cannot help but embrace our culture's overwhelming insistence that our heart will never lead us astray. Um, and so Yondu tells Peter to correctly use his power to help defeat his evil dad, that he needs to use his heart and not his, not his mind. Um, that he, um, that that's how he make, Yondu says, that's how I make my arrow fly. Like that's how you need to do it. And so then there's this kind of quick montage. Peter's thinking back on all of these loving moments that he had with um, all the different people in his group. Um, and it's it's a great it's a beautiful kind of family moment, but but back of it is the idea that whatever's in your heart is 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 true and is right. So if you were just stay true to your heart, then everything's going to turn out okay. Which is again not that that's like not what the Bible says. He says Earl says that um, if our culture actually knew the Bible, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, <laughs> would be a very offensive verse um, to those who heard it. Um, and so, cause it, it stands in opposition to that follow your heart kind of message so that he, he's kind of saying that's, that's one area where guardians to falters, um, you know, is the idea that the heart is the infallible, perfect guide for every person. Um, anyway, that's just kind of, that's kind of, I mean, that's the basics and, um, it's a good article. I thought I enjoyed reading it and I thought he kind of pulled out some of the most obvious, um, kind of gospel <coughs> themes that you could pull from the movie. Oh, thanks so much for that. It's a very eloquent overview of the article and a uh, quick introduction to just the richness of the possible Christian themes and lessons we can take from the film. Um, so now let's dig in a little deeper with the Christian lessons that we've identified as ones we want to explore some more. Um, I'll go first. So for me, what's most interesting really in the film is this image of God that's presented in ego um, that Katie you just mentioned this little G God and his plan to 
terraform other worlds, to me, it provides this very negative model of conversion, like a type of, uh, like a symbol of religious conversion, even if we're taking ego as this god figure. Um, and he is obviously this very godlike figure, but uh, a definitely a negative one who's using his power to destroy life, to squash all the variety of the universe into conformity with himself and his will. Um, so for me, the Christian lesson here is really that this is a model of how not to see God, um, of what God is not, but what God is often taken to be. And when we see God in this way, it has damaging consequences. Um, so with this kind of evil godlike figure, it's how we can be tempted to see God as this powerful being with just this veneer of love because he, you know, initially presents himself as desiring Peter's companionship and as this loving father who, you know, plays catch with his son with a ball of light. But underneath, he's just this monster who's only concerned with expanding his own glory and power and who does not value the lives of individuals and is, in fact, more than content to uh, consume them in his unstoppable and uncaring wrath, um, even to... And basically like mean Old Testament God then, right? Yeah, well, uh, the like uh, in the image that we create of God, like uh, uh-huh. a negative image of God, yeah. Like even... He even destroys his own children, you know, giving away some more spoilers there. But, you know, Nebula and Gamora discover that Egos killed many children before Peter when they failed to be useful to his plan. So it's sort of like sacrificing the children in the service of his will um, and maybe could go with uh, some models of uh, the, the role of God in the death of Christ and exactly what that is. So... Um, so for me, generally, this is a powerful image again of how not to see God. Not only should we not see God as, you know, always only a white man, whether that's Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel creator or this Kurt Russell character. Um, but even more importantly for me, I don't want to see God as this monster of self-centered hatred. Um, and I don't want to see conversion to God's will or a submission to God's will as this loss of life and selfhood, like the people and the worlds who are to be consumed by ego's expansion or with ego's attempt to win Peter over to uh, participation in his plan through force and brainwashing that we have going on near the end of the film. Well, my question um, for both of y'all, and I was not a psych person in college, but I mean, the character's name is ego. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do we think? What do we think of the the meaning of that? Because I, like I said, I was not a psych person, so I had to like pull it up on Wikipedia, like a true academic. But um, what do y'all think of the meaning of you know, if we're talking about ego as this god character, the fact that his name is ego. What what, what do y'all? What does that mean to y'all? Hmm. I don't know. I haven't really thought of that, but I guess in terms of like a psychology reference, it's a little, it seems a little bit of a, a joke because it seems like he's more more of an id, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. And yeah. <laughs> and, well, I think it's almost like uh, um. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say from what I just pulled up uh, that. So basically the ego is supposed like the id is the, yeah, like the id is the, that pure unadulterated, like just um, it, like human instinct and drive. And the ego is the thing that keeps it in check. And the thing, only way I think I could think of it is that like ego, he calls himself ego, but that is what he has to call himself. And he's pretending to be, to do all this, to keep in check that drive that he has. Does that make sense? Oh. So so he put so he puts on this the thing of like he's going to these planets and he's or he's trying to be here. So pretending to be this this ego to but that it it in fact when he when he it breaks him down, he's just like a super brain planet. That yes, he is an id, but him putting on that uh that kind of uh physical form to interact with Peter, that's the ego. That's the thing that's Oh, yeah. So he's trying to contain that id, at least in, in, as long, until he can get what he wants. I don't know. Would Peter himself mm. be the superego then? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's a hilarious I mean, that's idea. That's basically like the uber, <laughs> uber itch or uber ego. Yeah. Um, so uh, 
if your super ego is like the reflection of like cultural rules. So that's what's taught by people who have like had like that's like the outside force that's had like your parents and your teachers or your school have guided you and he's the one that has actually had that either through his mother or through Yondu who is his real father figure. Oh, maybe it's not just him following his fallible heart after all then. <laughs> maybe not. Um, I was thinking too when you said that, another way I think it's a it's an apropos name is just in the sense of the way we think of it as our kind of self-esteem yeah. or um, like self-worth because I, the part that to me is like the most obvious about that is when he says to Peter Quill, Peter Quill says something like, why didn't you come back for me yourself? Why did you send Yondu? Um, to get me, and Ego says something like, I couldn't come back and experience Earth with your mother dead. Like, that, I was so upset. You can't imagine what that feels like. Like, that he, that he's so centered on his, himself mm-hmm. that he thinks that Peter could never understand, and Peter Quill says, um, yeah, no, I know exactly how that feels like, because I watched her die. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like he has that inability to empathize. There's no ability to empathize. So that he is, um, he's, he is just is self-worth he you know he he is all about himself um you know and it's also maybe um that name could also be a reference to just a kind of um the idea of ego as um the ego as like a thinking subject um Uh i was looking it up too and that's one thing that i saw too is um in in a more philosophical or metaphysical sense um you know he's a brain yeah like he talks about beginning as thought right um, and so I think that's part of it too. But yeah, I think we're definitely meant to see him as the person whose ego is so big that it's a planet, like, you know. Um, and that's and it that's why he has to be stopped. It's because he just wants to make everything into himself. Yeah. And it's funny because he claims to have been lonely, like. But then the minute Peter Quill wants to deviate from his plan, he's ready to just you know. Yeah. Nice. Take him over. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, and what you mentioned about his inability to empathize is so interesting when it comes to Mantis as a foil to his character and her deep ability to empathize, which is something we'll get to later. Um, But it also goes along with um, what I see as like a a sort of positive counter model of conversion that has to do with the ability to form relationships um, to not be just relying on yourself and your the ever-expanding ego like we've been talking about um, which was really what what drew me to this film so much um, because even though I d- I'm not sure that the film actually presents a counter more positive model of God specifically, though there's lots of Christ figures like Katie mentioned, and we'll talk some more about that. Um, But it does have this counter model of conversion that to me I see most powerfully in um, Rocket sort of thinking about whether or not whether or not he'll let himself accept the love of his chosen family, this guardians group, um, and the the unconditional familial love that they offer to Rocket really contrasts with this fake and ultimately self-serving love that Ego, you know, pretends to have for Peter, like we've seen. So in this one moving scene, Yandu brings Rocket to the realization that. Rocket's the one who dri- drives others away and that he only has to accept w- what they're offering, but he's afraid to accept it because um, just precisely because he needs it so much. It's such a profound need. And in accepting the love of his chosen family, Rocket is part of a family, and so he's more, he's more fully himself. His identity and those of the other guardians is not erased in this kind of conversion. It's not subsumed into some overriding or all-consuming force like with the ego model of conversion so for me really the main christian lesson is is this as i'm applying these models of conversion to christian conversion it's that this kind of conversion is not a loss of self and it certainly should not be done by force or due to fear of some kind of self-serving God. Instead, I see conversion as really this free acceptance of love that's freely given, and it makes you more full of yourself. Um, and I know, Katie, that you are going to talk more about uh, Rocket and the other characters responding to love, so I'm going to stop there for my part, and let's move on to you and see um, what you have to say about the Christian theme or lesson that you've chosen. So I chose to talk about um, love, specifically sacrificial love, 
um, in the film. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a, a movie in which almost everybody gets to make some kind of sacrifice um, for another person or for everyone, um, depending on the situation. And I think that um, self-sacrifice plays an important role in these movies in part because that's how we see the love, right? These are not characters who openly express love. Um, they often, um, you know, at one point Nebulous says something like, you guys aren't a family. Listen to the way that you talk to each other. You're so, like, basically you're so mean to each other. This is how you act towards each other and you're going to say that you're a family. Um, or no, I think she actually, I think she says you're going to say that you're friends and Drax mm -hmm. says, no, we're not friends, we're family. That's mm -hmm. what it is. Um, so she notices the way they interact with each other. And so since the, at least verbally, they can be very hard on each other. I think that these kind of self-sacrificing moves are where you can see the love that's actually there. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, um, you have all these different, um, times like I mentioned earlier um early on in the film the plane or the, the the shuttle's going down and um Drax had earlier in this battle with the sovereign um who were chasing them had strapped himself to some kind of cable and flung himself out of the back um of the shuttle Drax the destroyer like with a giant gun to try to take out these ships and they kind of forget he's back there and so they're kind of crashing down onto this planet and Gamora remembers he's out there and kind of jumps out. She she jumps out the back of the, the shuttle, too, to, to help him. Which, you know, um, she's especially, um, can be especially prickly. Um, a lot of times she has, and I, this is, I think this is totally warranted, a, a lot of times has a frustration with the, the, the male characters in their constant fighting. And she says, there's a big fight that they have right after the crash of the shuttle where she, she basically says, you guys fighting is the reason all this happened. You know, you're you're hurting the group. Like it's it's a it's an interesting discussion of group dynamics, um, actually, and kind of um, we would maybe say family dynamics about how their um, their kind of infighting was endangering the group. But so she you know she jumps out of the back of the of the shuttle to to help Drax. That could have ended badly for her. Um, there are times in the final battle where um, you know everybody i mean everybody's in trouble you know drax is trying to to get manis back to the ship to save her and they start sinking into some quicksand or something you know um ego's kind of taking out everybody and so um even baby groot has his role to play in the end a very dangerous role um and so everyone gets a chance but th the most poignant moments of self-sacrifice in this film i think are places where it's tied to redemption so that um in the end again huge spoilers um Yondu, through um, sacrificing himself um, in the end unto death to save Peter Quill, he that his self-sacrifice gains his redemption. Um, he'd been cast out of his of, of the Ravagers. Um, of all these Ravager crews have this confederation, and he'd been cast out for bringing children of Ego to Ego years before. Um, and as their leader says, we don't deal in children. Like, that's not um, what we're about. And, and that's also an interesting family. That's also set up as a family. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Um, the leader tells him, you broke our heart. You know, you, he, did, he doesn't say you broke the rules, though he did break the rules. Um, and, uh, but in the end, making the sacrifice that he does, both to save Peter Quill and also to help them defeat Ego and save all these other planets, then when they tell this to all the Ravager crews, they then show up to give him like a hero's funeral. So it's it's his self-sacrifice leads to his redemption um, in the end. And to me, that's that's probably one of the mo that's probably the most poignant statement. Um, though another place that you see that at the end is, um, and this is also a very I guess a kind of Christ-like analog, is that near the end of the movie, Ego says to Peter Quill, "If you kill me, your power will leave you." and you will be just like everybody else. And he says, well, what's so bad about that? And, you know, whatever strikes his, his kind of killing, or the, or not strikes his killing blow, but they're able to defeat him. But the idea that he um, is emptying himself of this power, you know, it makes, I mean, in a lot of ways, it makes me think of the incarnation. You know, he's, um, I mean, again, he's a crass dude. He's not, in many ways, not Christ-like at all, but he's, you know, voluntarily giving up these, celestial or godlike powers um to save 
you know, to save the world or to, you know, to save the galaxy, right? To, to quote the name and to save his friends on a more personal level, knowing that he could die in the attempt. Um, and that I think is a huge kind of moment of self-sacrifice. But those are the, those are the big things that I noticed. And as far as responses to love, like Marie mentioned, um, you really see those the most with Rocket Raccoon and also Yondu. And in that amazing scene that Marie referenced at one yeah. point, Yondu says to Rocket, yeah, he says, I know you because I was you or I am you, you're me, like we're the same, um, you know. And he's kind of trying to help Rocket not make the same mistakes that he did, mistakes of pushing away any love um, so that he can keep his feelings guarded. No, such a powerful you know, scene. It's amazing. That was my, that was my other favorite scene, um, you know, and also um, the idea that um, sometimes responses to love fail because of differing expectations. That was a big thing with Gamora and Nebula. Um, you know, they were both adopted by Thanos um, and you learn in this movie. I don't know if they mentioned it in the first movie. Maybe they do that. He would make them fight each other all the time when they were children. And um, Nebula says in the movie that Gamora won every time. And this is the reason she hates Gamora, is because Gamora can never just let her win. And Gamora says, well, I was just trying to survive. And Nebula says, okay, but I just wanted a sister. Like in that case, they had totally different expectations. They weren't viewing the relationship as the same relationship. And so it created this rift, there's not love. And so that's another part of this movie is those two attempting to coming to a very uneasy reconciliation of a sorts of um, acknowledging that sisterly relationship and Gamora realizing, okay, she was wanting me to respond with love, right? And I didn't even get that that's what she wanted or needed. I thought that was powerful. What did you guys think about those, the love redemption well, sacrifice? the thing that I, that, that, that I just really saw in the contrast is so you have our heroes of uh, Yondu uh, having all the sacrificial love and so he's sacrificing himself. And contrast that with Ego, who does nothing but sacrifice others. I mean, all of the women, females, you know, that he has gone and, you know, you know, knocked up across the, all of the galaxies. We're presuming they probably all suffered the same fate as, you know, Peter's mother. All of the children that he has brought forth. And so he's just sacrificing all these lives to get what he wants. And so you see, and so again, that sacrifice is what shows love. And so we have our, our heroes sacrificing for each other. And so even though they're being, you know, they're being, they're verbally maybe being mean to each other, they're doing the things that family actually does versus ego, who is saying all of the things that you might initially expect family to say about, we're going to play catch, we're going to do this but he's not actually acting on it. And in fact, he's sacrificing others on his own behalf. And so yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that's a very interesting parallel. Yeah. And when it comes to Gamora and Nebula, it's um, interesting when, and with it in terms of sacrifice that Nebula was blaming Gamora for not having thought of sacrificing herself for her when they were tiny children forced to <laughs> fight each other. Oh, like, sure. She's yeah, like, why yeah. didn't you choose to lose sometimes so I didn't have to keep, you know, getting these replacement body parts to as a punishment? Um, so there's sort of perhaps almost even an unreasonable but yet extremely understandable expectation that she should have been sacrificing for her as her sister. Though, in I mean, the situation of abuse, so obviously... Um, Thanos is the one that's, that's at blame there rather than Gamora. But um, yeah, yeah, such yeah. complex family situations they bring up in this movie, which is just part of the richness for me. And I really wasn't expecting the whole Yondu storyline that was so um, so much deeper than I would have thought that character would have Yeah, that really came out of nowhere for me this movie, that there are a lot mm -hmm. of things that in the first movie, I was like, oh, he's just kind of this background character. I didn't even know his name. He was Blue Alien. Um, that's all I remembered him from the first movie. And so, you know, and he's kind of a villain in the first movie that yeah, we mm -hmm, are, yeah. you know, he's after, you know, after Peter for something and, you know, he's trying to get something. We're like, okay, we, we just know that he, he's a bad guy. And so to, the, I just think that, that, and so not that I, I disliked him or I was like, oh, you know, you know, he wasn't like Lex Luthor or something, you know, 
but it was but like clearly he just wasn't like a hero and so for the writing and for the plot for them to have set up for him to have such a redemption from him just kind of being this at least to me middling background generic villain like man that was really impressive yeah and then it's like you know it's, it's funny real too, father um, you know <laughs> in terms of being the father that loves him rather than the biological father but sorry what were you saying <laughs> yeah no i was just gonna say and that that touches off what sarah said too about words versus actions because if you think about it you know um peter gets hung up on the fact that yondu always used to say mean things to him and like tell him he was gonna eat him like i mean just ridiculous like ridiculous threats but if you look at his actions yondu's actions even in the first movie so many of the things that he does um, if you look at the actions that he takes with regard to Peter Quill, you can see that he that he has he cares for him, and that even that's another plot point in, in this movie in Guardians Two is that um, members of his crew even who are supportive of him challenge him on the fact that he keeps letting Peter Quill off the hook no matter what happens between them, and it's almost uh, you know why do you value Peter Quill more than you do the rest of us when we've been here the whole time. It's a really interesting, um, you know, and it ends up causing a mutiny um, on his ship. And, you know, because his his kind of devotion to Peter Quill is, you know, is beginning to be noticed more and more by these other guys who serve him. Yeah. So for the sake of time, let's move on to Sarah's theme. What did what did you bring up, Sarah? Well, the thing that I uh, found most uh, or one of the things I found most compelling about this particular movie were the different representations and how each of the different uh, heroes or actually just all the characters, what they, how they were defining their own self-worth. Because I feel that everybody initially in this movie comes in with a sense of they're not quite comfortable with who they are and they, they're all really trying to, to prove themselves. And specifically, uh, I feel uh, Rocket, Raccoon, really struggles with this and he, uh, you don't see it as much in the first movie, but we're getting a little more depth and he's becoming a little more of a vulnerable character. And he, he really has to struggle because in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe in the MCU, uh, Rocket was basically kind of cr- just created um, out of, you know, experimentation. And so he, he really he really kind of suffers because he knows he is the only one of his kind. There, there is no other talking sentient raccoon out there anywhere. He doesn't, everybody else has a people. Yondu is part of the ravagers. Peter, you know, he, he has his family. He has his, uh, he was from earth. Uh, Gamora, she's whatever the, whatever type of green alien Gamora is, she, you know, she's from something, they know what they're from and Rocket doesn't have that. And so he, he feels a lot of, you know, anger at the fact that he was created. Why was he created? And he is pushing everyone away. And so he has to kind of figure out, okay, where does my, where does my self-worth come from? Where does my, for lack of a better word for a, raccoon where does my humanity come from what is it that makes me you know valuable and he you know he has to figure out that it is it is the relationships that he has with other people and one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is um in the in the first movie you kind of have a big Groot regular Groot um he does a lot of looking after uh Rocket and then you know after the uh and after the end of the first movie, you know, you have Baby Groot and Rocket now is kind of the caretaker of Baby Groot. And so he has to really expand on what he was. He can't just be this, you know, fast talking, you kind of brilliant gun for hire anymore, um, kind of space pirate. He, he has to fill a niche. And one of the ways that um, he ends up with a lot of a, um, and there's a lot of friction between him and Peter because he and Peter are kind of like, aren't we kind of the same role? Are we both the the hotshot, wisecracking pilots, you know, party guys? We're the, you know, and so that's where a lot of friction comes from. And so he has to find, um, he has to determine what his own self-worth is. And you also have other characters doing that as well. We haven't really mentioned Mantis at all, but Mantis does this as well that she is um 
uh, they, um, Ego finds her when she's kind of in this like larval state and brings her to him and basically just has her serve him. And so she, she doesn't really feel like she has self-worth because the only thing she does and she is basically serving ego and using her powers on his behalf. And it's not until she kind of interacts with some of the other characters that she's that it kind of either dawns on her or that she's and that she's like, I can do something better than this. And so she has to find that for herself as well. Um, and so, and also, I guess, lastly, um, with Peter, he, again, not that he uh, has any problem with self-esteem, but I feel like self-esteem and self-worth are, are slightly different things. Uh, self-worth or, you know, what makes you human he, yes, he is physically human, he is, or humans by species, but what makes him, what gives him depth, what, what makes him who he is, he is looking for that, again, through trying to find this relationship with Ego, his biological father, and so he, he has to kind of turn away from that and say, okay, where, where is my, my self-worth and everything going to come from if it's not going to be through these traditional means, uh, so uh, what do y'all think on that? Anything y'all would like to add? Oh, that's very thorough. And um, I hadn't thought of that with Mantis in terms of uh, her discovery of her self-worth and that journey that she's on. And it seems like her empathic abilities are maybe initially an expression of like that not really knowing herself, like she has to draw the emotions from others but perhaps they progress to actually being able to relate to them as she's discovered her own self-worth. I don't know. Hmm. I think um, it's one of the most interesting parts to do maybe with self-worth or at least with self-concept is um, that she um, Drax, because he's completely literal and will say anything, tells her that she's ugly, Um, which, you know, we would normally always take as an insult and he tells her that she's hideous and um, she looks mildly hurt, but he says, no, but that's good because when you're ugly and somebody loves you, then you know they really love you. Um, and b that beautiful people never know who to trust. It's a very interesting view of at least physical appearance and ways that we feel about it. You know, I think we tend, a lot of times our culture tends to say, well, if you look good, you feel good. Or, you know, um, that having an appearance that you like is going to naturally give you confidence. But Drax is seeing it from the complete opposite direction. If you're a beautiful person, then maybe you have this inner instability because you never know who to trust. You know, who's playing up to you just because you're attractive or whatever. And so, you know, um, at the end, and then he kind of progresses in the way he talks to her. And at the end of the movie tells her that she is beautiful and then adds on the inside because he cannot tell a lie and he still thinks she's hideous which is such a joke dressed. for the audience um, <laughs> because of course she is outwardly beautiful to the audience she's so beautiful so beautiful um but it's an interesting idea but that that was one part that i noticed and i thought um in that case he's because she is the way she is she's only ever, the only person she's ever known is ego and she has this almost complete innocence and naivete so he's kind of building her self-concept in the ways that he's talking to her and, you know, telling her that might be the first time anyone's ever commented on her appearance. We don't know. You know, um, it's just kind of interesting. Um, and also just thinking about um, the ways that people's self-worth or self-esteem, at least um, like Sarah talked about, are constantly being defined against the other people. You know, what does my newfound dad think about me if I'm Peter Quill? How does that make me feel better about myself? Or, you know, um, Gamora, you know, saying um, Peter Quill's like, I finally found my family. And she said, I thought you already had found your family, you know, so that she's offended mm -hmm. or she feels hurt because he's looking for something more than what he has in their relationship um, as, as a kind of pseudo or a, a kind of constructed family, not a pseudo family, but they've made a little family together. So it seems like that everybody's always kind of defining their self-worth or defining their, their place or their um, confidence um, against the other characters. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point that Mantis is so raised so entirely by ego, and yet it seems like uh, that really points out the strength of her character to me that she's able ultimately to resist ego when, that, when he's really all that she's known of, of life up until the arrival of yeah, the Guardians. Yeah, sure. Um, at the same time, though, there's some potential issues with 
the character of Mantis, which we should talk about for just a couple minutes here at the end of, of the section, if that's all right. Um, Sarah, you read an article about some of these. Um, would you care to summarize that? Yes. Um, and just to the audience, any of the articles we reference, we'll make sure those go in the show notes so y'all can click on them and find them. Yeah, for um, sure. And so one of the things that uh, this particular article um, uh, by uh, Danya Adanki, uh, Darting the Galaxy Volume 2 and the Submissive Asian Woman Trope. And so it it talks about that it can that it might be um, an issue for other for some that in this movie the character of Mantis is played um, by a um, her her actress is half Korean half French and the the actual um, I looked up the actual um, comic book character is supposed to be like half Vietnamese half German so I mean but and so she's half Asian essentially um, for the actress and the actual character and that her the uh, character of Mantis, she is an empath. And so basically her entire state is that she she's very quiet. Um, and the only thing that she has basically done for however long that she has been alive, I don't really feel like the movie gives us an idea that, you know, that the actress looks young, but I, I you know, I can't imagine that, you know, she's only actually been there 25 years or however old this actress is. Um, that the only thing she has done is is serve Ego, who is a white man. And it talks about how this kind of, this is reminiscent from a time when, uh, you know, Western men went to Asia to kind of save Asian women countries. And it, it kind of is um, her, that it reinforces the fact that, you know, Mantis could be seen as, weak because she is basically an Asian woman serving a white master and talks about how this is a longstanding trend and that kind of strong Asian women are rarely seen on screen. And if they do exist, sometimes it's, uh, they don't actually get fair representation such as in Ghost in the Shell. And we actually talk about that in the, in our episode um, over Ghost in the Shell. And, and so that, yes, we've gotten better at representing um, Asians in film, but that they just, you know, this wasn't enough. Um, my, I'm someone who honestly, generally, um, if you're going to, I have a hard time a lot of times uh, agreeing with stuff like this, because if you're going to take on this property and this is how the character is written, what are you going to do? Are you going to just completely change how the character is written? Which I guess you could do. Um, or are you just not going to have her because to have her would be as is, and I'm going to say this with air quotes, problematic. Uh, if she's accurately uh, represented as how the character is written. Um, and to me, I, when I was watching, I never thought of Mantis as weak. I mean, she, she's there and yes, she's working for ego, but she's, survived when a lot of other people would have gotten killed or, you know, and she is able to ultimately define him. And he is essentially a little G God. So to me, I mean, that shows an enormous actual strength that she has. And especially in Guardians of the Galaxy, you have multiple extremely strong female characters. I mean, you have Gamora and you have um, her sister who are amazing kick-ass characters who are doing backflips and kung fu and like piloting planes. And so the idea that I, I actually, I, I sometimes resent it, this idea that the only type of strength is a traditional masculine strength, because that's what this seems. That's what this article seems to be telling me is that she's not strong because she's not strong. Like the men are strong, but they're, I mean, we are the Christian feminist podcast. Like we should be able to acknowledge and celebrate that there is a quiet feminine strength that can be just as unyielding as the masculine shoot 'em up aggressiveness that you see from the other two, the other two female characters in the movie. So that's kind of where I end up on this. So I I liked Mantis because, like I said, I I thought that she had a very quiet strength. And I think that 
quiet strength is something that you don't usually get, uh, you don't usually see in movies. So there you go. What do, what do y'all see on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree about the different kinds of strength, and I find her to be a very strong character. At the same time, when I was watching the film, I, I was thinking, you know, a lot of the same things that Donkey was bringing up in the article, like, and kind of like uh, groaning inside a little bit because of um, just sort of the more stereotypical aspects of the way like mantis fits into this east-west relationship like a donkey talks about um i think uh she brings that up yeah um and yeah so i do find that like you say the word problematic air quotes (laughs) whether or not there's um a viable way to solve the problem um but at the same time um there's something i wanted to bring up that adds sort of um a little bit of nuance to the representation of mantis i think when it comes to looking at her as a foil for ego like i mentioned earlier and that's something that was raised in an article I read by Josh Larson. Um, it's a Think Christian article from May 8th titled Guardians of the Galaxy's Small G God. Um, so in the article, Larson points out some of the ways that ego contrasts with Larson's view of God. Um, most significantly, he contrasts ego's loneliness with God's Trinitarian relationality and um, he talks about how the human humans being created to praise God has to do with caring for creation rather than caring for some kind of self-centered ego. Um, but then, uh, really interestingly to me, Larson goes on to identify Mantis as perhaps a representation of God that's more positive than egos because of her empathic abilities that Larson suggests form a parallel to Christ's full entry into human life and experience. So Mantis presents this kind of Christ-like image of God's love for humanity that's kind of a contrast to the other Christ-like figures that we've been looking at, um, Peter and Yondu. So I wanted to see, too, what you guys thought about not only a donkey's criticisms, which I agree with largely, though I think there's more nuance to uh, Mantis's character than what she brings out, but also to this idea of Mantis as this kind of uh, figure for Christ's incarnational participation in humanity. Um, So what what do you guys think of that? I don't know that that necessarily occurred to me, Um, though I do think that um, it, I think her ability to touch other people and feel their feelings and not just her ability but also her willingness to do that um despite the fact that then she has to feel all their feelings um i think that that is an interesting kind of parallel to you know to christ's willingness to come down and live a human life and experience the the Mm. sorrows and and you know um it makes me think of like jesus crying over lazarus you know i mean um so jesus's willingness to take on human emotions um, and human experiences, right, um, in his incarnation, I think, because you see that with her, you know, she, one of the times when she just kind of, um, ran, not randomly, but like without being asked, one of the times that she puts her hand and feels someone's feelings is she does this to Drax at one point, um, and she starts to cry, like she just immediately starts to cry because at that he had been telling a story about his family, his family who were all dead, mm. his, his blood family, right? Um, and so she, you know, she is maybe sensing in that moment that he's having negative emotions, but she wants to participate in that. She wants to feel what that feels like because she's never encountered that, right? She's never encountered the love of a father for his child or whatever. Um, because that's, oh man, that just now occurred to me for the first time, those two parallels. Oh. You know, she's obviously never encountered the love of a father for his child because egos had nothing but destruction yeah. for his children. Um, and so, you know, she, but, and the thing that struck me so much about that moment too, is that she touches Drax and she immediately starts to cry, but he has almost like a gentle smile on his face. And you can tell that, um, she's, you know, she's feeling mostly his sadness, but it seems a mixed moment to me for him of almost like a, like a, a, a kind of positive nostalgia mixed with sadness. You know, he's remembering this happy moment, but the sadness is so bound up in it that what she feels is the sadness, um, the great sadness on the inside of him. And I think that moment makes him so much more um, complicated and interesting. Wow, yeah. 
Oh, well, we're running out of time now, though. There's so much more to talk about with these things. But let's move on to the final segment uh, where we give our recommendations for further reading, listening or watching. Um, Katie, would you be able to start us off with that? Absolutely. Um, What I'm recommending this week is actually a, a, a series of special showings of films. So a while back, we did an episode about the films of Hayao Miyazaki. And um, this year in American cinemas, there is what is called Studio Ghibli Fest 2017. Um, uh, I know. That sounds amazing. um, I heard about it. It is amazing. I know. I heard about it recently. Um, So basically from June through November, once a month, there's going to be special showings of a different Miyazaki film each month. It's um, you have to be paying attention because it's like two showings. Um, So I took my daughter, for example, we just did this. I took my daughter last weekend to see Kiki's Delivery Service. It's her favorite movie. Um, She's five. And so basically how it works is um, usually the first day, like I took her the first day, is dubbed in English. The second, the showing on the second day is Japanese with subtitles. Um, They're not, um, and so it's one of these things, and we'll we'll have a link, listeners, um, to um, a schedule. But basically, you just kind of have to search and see which theaters in your area are showing it. Um, And I know I'm in a big metropolitan area, so it was easier for me. There were kind of three theaters in my area. It might be harder for some listeners. But the films um, that are still to come is um, August is Castle in the Sky, September, uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, uh, October, Spirited Away, which I'm very excited about because that's my favorite one. And um, November is House Moving Castle. So um, if you're at all a fan of Miyazaki and you've always wanted to see one of his films on the big screen because maybe you missed it the first time or something um, in the in theaters or it wasn't available, you should totally check out Studio Ghibli Fest. Um, also, before the film, for Kiki, there was a, um, also a short film, too. And I think that all of these, all the Miyazaki features are preceded by various short films. Um, so it's also an opportunity to see a creative short film. Ours wasn't animated. Um, it, well, it wasn't animation. It was kind of real people almost in stop motion. It was very interesting. My daughter was scared by it, but that's just because she's five. I didn't find it. <laughs> um, I felt like a jerk, though. It was her first movie theater experience, and she was kind of freaked out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's my recommendation for this week is Studio Ghibli Fest 2017. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> What's your recommendation, Sarah? Uh, my recommendation, kind of going along with the uh, what we've been talking about with kind of sacrifice, sacrifice uh, for your for your friends and your kind of adopted family, is I am recommending the, in my opinion, only good of the original Star Trek movie, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Ooh. Um, because awesome. it's has um, a lot of wonderful um, sacrifice between characters um, and it, you know, there it's sci-fi. It um, has these amazing characters who, if you've watched the show, um, the original uh, series that you've, you've grown to love and they are at kind of their, to me, their darkest, uh, their darkest moment. And so uh, it, it's really wonderful and has one of the great, the great uh, movie like screams in movie history. Um, and so if, if you, yeah. Um, and so if you are somebody who you really loved, like picked up on the, like the sacrificial love and redemption, um, and self-worth and like how these characters who they love each other, but they don't really act like it. And in fact, they act more like family because they can treat each other poorly because you only treat people you really, you don't know very well. Those are the people you treat really politely. Right. Um, your family kind of gets the worst of you. And so I think in Star Trek uh, 2, you, you kind of get that of, you know, you have all of these characters who have been together and who have these wonderfully established relationships and you kind of get to see them um, do some really cool stuff and, again, have that wonderful, like, self-sacrifice at the end. So Star Trek, Wrath of Khan. Uh, it's such a classic. Yeah. I think we should do an art, uh, uh, an episode on that sometime maybe. <laughs> oh, I'm down for it. I'm totally yeah. down. <laughs> Um, So for my part, something that came to mind to recommend is a book called A New Kind of Conversation. It's from 2012. It's edited by Myron Bradley Pinner and Hunter Barnes. And it's this collaborative work with a, a large number of contributors. And it's written using this interesting kind of informal blogging style that you don't necessarily see in 
book collection so much. Um, but one of the major strands of conversation that stood out to me in the book was a concern with models of evangelization. And I was kind of thinking of that in the back of my mind as I was thinking about contrasting models of conversion in relation to this film. So one model of evangelization you could you could see as being sort of more force-based and argumentative style using reason and overpowering facts and that kind of thing. Um, but they talked about in this book another kind of evangelization, or maybe more accurately just conversation, um, is more narrative-based and more sort of acknowledging of individual experience and individual life journeys. Um, so it's kind of a similar contrast to what I was thinking about with this film. Um, and uh, it's this—it's a contrast that I hadn't really thought about before reading this book, so it was kind of interesting to me in that way. So, and I encourage um, encourage you guys to check it out. Okay, so that's our show. Uh, thank you, Katie and Sarah, for joining me in this discussion of Christian Lessons from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, and thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Flippick is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Sarah Davis and Katie Grubbs, I'm Marie Haas. As always, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.